We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zoo archaeology. I'm Alex Patrick, and with me as always, Simona Falanga. And this is the second installment. I mean, I could just say episode, but it's like installment, digital gravitas. Yeah, this is the second installment of our mini series that we've been doing, which we started last month with the episode on early prehistoric. And now we are doing Time Warped Part 2, the zoo archaeology of the later prehistoric. <laughs> We are indeed talking about the later Bronze Age and the Iron Age, mostly in Britain. I think as we've mentioned in the previous episode, this miniseries might end up being a little bit Britain-centric or like even like England-centric almost for the most part. But I do promise we will remedy that in a later miniseries that we're working on. So, you know, stay tuned. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of had that disclaimer for all of our episodes because, you know, as we have said many times, me and Simona are both based here in Britain. We do mainly British archaeology, so we're a little biased, I feel like. Yeah, I think so far it's been mostly England with, like, with a touch of Scotland here and there. Just just a dab, a little tiny dab of Scotland. Someone said we will branch out a bit more, but obviously, you know, you do what you know. And I think we, well, some of us know too much than others, I feel like, about certain, you know, periods of time. It's a good occasion to learn. Yeah, wait until the next episode. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd like to say for the next episode, Alex will solely take charge of all the notes and the research and <laughs> the discussion of the Romano-British period. I'm just not going to be here. It's just going to be Simona. There's no point in me even showing up. <laughs> anyway. Well, you, can just, you can just be there like throwing hashtags, like Chunky Toes and I mean, all the I other ones we got going. I think that's producer Tristan's uh, job. Let's not, no, let's not summon him. I was just going to say, it's like Beetlejuice, except he'll, he'll just come in. Anyway, back on track, you know. Um, so yeah, like a brief overview of the time periods that we're going to discuss. The late Bronze Age, at least in Britain, goes from about 1000 to 700 BC. And the Iron Age goes from there all the way to 100 AD, which kind of makes it overlap with the Romano-British period, which formally begins with the Roman invasion of Britain in 59 AD. As you may suspect by the names, <laughs> these phases are characterized by the use of bronze and iron, respectively. No. Which... Yeah, right. Of course, you know, the Bronze Age is when iron was used and in the Iron Age is when bronze was used. Yeah. 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 
Which brings us again to the other disclaimer that we, I think we'll be doing for every single installment of this mini-series, that, of course, these terms, you know, Bronze Age, Iron Age, or, you know, are a bit like they're conventional terms which make it easier for us to identify, you know, a particular, a particular time period that we're talking about. So if mm. I say Bronze Age, you know that I mean sort of around from this time to this time before present, roughly. But, of course, they are, as you'd expect, very arbitrary in nature. <laughs> So it's not like in um, oh, whenever like the Bronze Age formally begins, like, so like some 3000 BC, someone just went, oh, what is this? It's bronze. We do bronze now. It's what we do. Or then, you know, 59 AD, AD the, the Romans invade and then just everyone wakes up, or wakes up one morning and goes, oh, our way, our way. It's, you know, there are changes that would have happened over a long period of time and there will be, you know, overlaps between time periods. But again, so like while these catch-all terms won't be 100% accurate, they really help us to sort of well, pinpoint what we're talking about in a way that is direct. So all that to say is that these are useful terms, but please do acknowledge their limitations. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an important thing to bring up every episode, which I guess if you're someone who is binging all of these episodes at once, I'm sorry that you're going to have to hear this every single time. But like, I think it's important just because, you know, that's something in archaeology, I think, at least for people who are outside of the field, maybe don't, don't really consider. And to be honest, I feel like in some respects, even I kind of forget sometimes like, oh, there is overlap, especially as someone who works predominantly in the later prehistoric period, it gets very tricky. Like you said, you know, we do technically overlap the Roman British period. And so you kind of get this weird back and forth, especially when you're working in sites that kind of have that overlap over what's happening, especially because I feel like there's, I guess, stereotypes, not stereotypes, but you know, there's very distinct ideas people have of, oh, this is the Iron Age and this is the, the Romano period. You know what I mean? Yeah, because also like yeah, like not everything would change overnight, and also some things would not change at all. Yeah, because even like we'll discuss it in the next episode more than anything. But even <laughs> though okay, the, the the Romans were in charge again, not everyone Romanized and became Roman. Like you know, yeah. the common people will just go, oh, so this bloke's in charge now. Yeah, I'll just go on with my daily life as I always have done if you know what I mean. No, yeah, exactly. And of course, we also don't see things so cut and dry in archaeology, even though I would love it to be that way. You know, you don't necessarily, especially if anyone who's listening to this isn't uh, an archaeologist. You, we, unfortunately, we don't get to just go to a site and be like, okay, so this graphic layer here is clearly just the Iron Age, and then right over it is just the Roman period, you know? Like, it just unfortunately doesn't work that way. So there is a kind of weird, like, I hate to say it, uh, it's a liminal space of time where you're kind of in the Iron Age, you're kind of not, you're kind of in the Late Bronze Age. 
you know. It's, it's, a, it's a transitional period. Ooh, transitional. We really. Everyone loves a transitional site. Yes, we definitely. It definitely doesn't make my life a nightmare, especially when you're working in something like zooarchaeology, where certain animals don't appear until certain times. So you're not really sure if you've just made a huge discovery about an early introduction of a species or someone's messed up. <laughs> Well, I don't know, if, if you're referring to a rabbit, then it was probably, you know, post-medieval, we just burrowed in, done. No, <laughs> chicken. I'm still yeah, saying rabbit. Again, because while some introductions are attributed to the Romans, because it's probably when we're finding them in larger numbers, but then, like, it wouldn't be outside the realms of possibility that much earlier on, a chicken made its way to Britain. You know, like, you know, some merchant saying, look at this weird thing I've got. Yeah. But then, you know, nothing came of it and they weren't systematically being kept. Or maybe they were and we're not finding them. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, what is the saying that I think 90% of the archaeological record, like, is already destroyed? Yep. Just just through, you know, like, taphonomic factors of things just decaying in the ground. And, well, especially, you know, all the organic material, like a lot of the wood. And so that would have been just gone. Yeah. For, a long, long, long time. So we're only through archaeology and like archaeological excavation, you only discover like that one portion. It's a bit like you're doing a puzzle of a thousand pieces and you find ten. <laughs> <laughs> All from the different corners and you've got to somehow fill up the blanks and trying to get a picture as accurate and unbiased as you can. Yeah, and that's where time these arbitrary time periods make sense. You know, if we have only 10 pieces of the jigsaw, it would make sense for you to start going, okay, I'm just going to start referring to them as, you know, the north corner, like the south corner, the east and the west or whatever, like very arbitrary kind of categories just to help orientate yourself. But also like in a more, I guess, Iron Age specific example, um, you have uh, throughout Europe various cultures mm -hmm. that have been identified and named of course the name would not have been the name of this culture <laughs> and again within sort of what we're broadly calling that culture there would have been several different tribes or society whichever societal structure they would have had that maybe you know they had things in common but might have been substantially different in terms of their belief system or particularly particular crafts and industries it's just that we're trying those that have the most similar sort of traits. We group them together and saying it's this culture. But again, that also tends to be a way to sort of make it easier to, you know, identify maybe like, you know, the finds for a particular from populations confined within a particular geographical region or maybe they had similar ways in which they built their structures or the material culture they produced. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that they were necessarily, you know, the same people. They might have been linked. They might have been trading. But that didn't mean they were all the same people. No, exactly. And the thing is that later prehistoric period is actually a great time for these kind of questions to be asked. Because guess what? We don't really know a lot about the later prehistoric in Britain. Because why would we? Because <laughs> they didn't write um, anything down. How inconsiderate. Exactly. Listen, if you're in the past, write everything down so that our jobs are 10 times easier. I'm tired. I'm tired of trying to figure out things. 
Yeah. So what I really want to see is that at the bottom of your Iron Age storage jar, I just want it hatched, saying this vessel was hand-built <laughs> under a full moon and then fired in a clam kiln on a Wednesday. What's a Wednesday? I don't know. <laughs> it's probably important for the people to read this later on, though. <laughs> Spoilers. But yeah, I mean, like, one of the things that I think is most distinct about, or like the lack thereof is so distinct about the later prehistoric period is, you know, things like funerary practices. It's, oh. oh, oh <laughs> uh, there's a whole chapter in my PhD about this. It's extremely pro- problematic because we don't have consistency in the way human remains and rites occur. So for the most part, especially like the late Iron Age, just kind of is invisible. There's like, they literally refer to it as like, you know, the invisible dead that we don't know. We don't have as many bodies. We don't know what's happening. You seem to kind of go from that kind of formal burial, you know, what we all consider burials. And then you have bodies that are just kind of dumped in ditches. And then you have remains that are put in the threshold of dwellings, you know, like juveniles. And yeah, the Iron Age is just, is wild, honestly. Because again, I guess it it wouldn't be that consistent because again, you would have had so many different cultures that again, might have been in contact and might have been trading, but Mm -hmm. they were all sort of doing their own thing. So maybe that, you know, some people would just... uh, dump their dead in a ditch and others would have more formal burial practices because then you know just because it's the same time period and the roughly the same geographical region it doesn't mean that people would have had the same approach to mortality because maybe like in some belief system i mean it might have been that the person was dumped in a ditch because he'd done something wrong and wasn't considered worthy Mm -hmm. of a decent burial or it might have just been that that particular culture maybe didn't ascribe, I don't know whether that's the right term, much to the body of the deceased, because, okay, like, they're, that's not them anymore. They're gone. That's just their flesh prison. Mm -hmm. And they didn't assign much value to it. Like, they would have all had different approaches to, well, death. Yeah, no, exactly. And then that ends up disrupting the kind of approach that we all have as archaeologists, where realistically it would be great if all these things were very cut and dry and neat for us to kind of understand but the 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 truth of it is that humans are messy and particularly groups of humans are messy so we have a very diverse kind of funerary record for the later prehistoric which on one hand is exciting because any work that's being done in it you know you're kind of just doing your own thing and you know at least for me personally kind of making it up as you go along but it's exciting it's and it's cool it's just extremely frustrating it's good to find sort of links so in a way like um okay you have different sort of burial practices going throughout but then it's great to see oh like so there's um these settlements in this particular geographical region that does this and also like this one over there so like of course because we know so little about it it's great to be able to establish links and trying to figure out why that is yeah even though of course frustratingly it may have also been that you know it's that thing that if if you have had an idea and you think it's a brilliant idea <laughs> chances are someone has already done it yeah in a way that we're humans we come up with the same things independently 
Exactly. If that makes sense. Yeah. The good thing, though, to be a bit more positive for once on this podcast is even if we do have this kind of, you know, obscurity around a lot of aspects of the later prehistoric, we do also have a rich archaeological record in a lot of other perspectives. And one of the interesting things, especially coming from a zooarchaeological perspective, is we are starting to see that human-animal relationship be a bit more established. So at this point, you know, agriculture has been practiced for thousands of years. And we start to see, I mean, obviously this has always always existed, but I feel like in the later prehistoric in particular, and when you have these settlement sites where people have been staying for long periods of time, you get to see a bit more of that relationship kind of being established and growing. And I feel like I'm going to say it, folks, everyone get ready with your bingo cards. You especially see this when it comes to ritual. <laughs> yep. Just just mark that down. Ritual, we, we, we got it, folks. But you do. You see an increased inclusion of domesticated animals into these deposits from the Neolithic onwards. So there's something very interesting there in terms of, you know, how what's going on with these relations. Again, like, obviously, animals have always been kind of pretty important in human life but it's particularly interesting from that perspective of well we've now been living with these animals for ages yeah because i guess they would have become maybe perhaps increasingly important i mean there's also the thing to bear in mind that we do have more data to go with compared to earlier time periods of course there, there will be that bias there but yes you do tend to see more so yeah, is it because yeah they had an increasingly sort of expanding relationship with the animals is it because were they perhaps wealthier meaning that they had more animals to spare for pure ritualistic purposes mm-hmm. or did their belief system substantially change and you see that reflected in the archaeological record or all of these <laughs> or none of these it's prehistory Ooh. Uh, as and I guess as we ponder these these big questions, or my brain, you know, melts from these big questions. I think we should all this pondering, all this pondering. All I listen, my life is ninety percent pondering and ten percent being tired uh, from pondering. So let's ponder some more uh, off my t-shirt, please. <laughs> yes, t-shirts. and uh, we'll take a break and we'll get back to it after this. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code animals pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to Archeo Animals. We are doing our second episode of our Time Warp series. And we're talking about the later prehistoric, mostly in Britain, but you know, we'll try. Pretty much entirely <laughs> in Britain. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. No, we don't no, have no, any bias. What's the bias? But no, 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 I've never, never heard the word. No, uh, <laughs> but yeah, and we're going to break down the periods a bit more, uh, which I think will be helpful, especially since we spent the first segment basically talking about how difficult the later prehistoric is. And just anything prehistoric for that matter. This is true. Yes. When you, when you lack written records and things like that, you really get your work cut out for you, you know? But isn't it all the more rewarding? Mm, I mean, I haven't seen that part yet, but you know. Oh, wait. It'll come eventually. As Simona said so eloquently in the first part, we start with the Bronze Age. Technically, kind of the late Bronze Age. Yeah, so it's really only about 300 years worth of Bronze Age, because from 1000 (laughs) BC to 700 BC. So only about yeah three hundred years worth of Bronze Age, no, no, not not an awful lot, just just a touch of Bronze Age. Again, that's all you need—a touch of Bronze Age. A touch of Bronze Age. <laughs> it seems like the name of a perfume. Ah, <laughs> touch of Bronze Age. That that could be something we could get into, like a perfume. Like that must exist, right? Like a perfume company that does scents based on time periods, like archaeologically. No, no, it's just an infusion of our tears. <laughs> I mean, that would be accurate. But I mean, I could imagine being like, oh, you know, you have, I don't know, like peat moss and hearth smells. <laughs> this is why I'm not doing this as a, a side business. But you know what I mean? I feel like that would be kind of cool. I know. I feel like if you're talking about, you know, most time periods, if you really want to capture the scent of an agricultural <laughs> cultural settlement, you'll probably be manure. Yeah. Like, museums are trying to do that now because they're trying to give you sort of sensory experiences, some of them. And I know it's a bit of a leap in terms of time period, but there's a, a museum in York, is that the Yorvik Viking Centre. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, is that Yorvik? That has the, the little ride through, like, the reconstructed Viking settlement at Coppergate, and it stinks. As it should, because <laughs> it's a, you get the full sensory experience of what it, been, what it would have been like to be sort of in a very crowded settlement where you'd routinely keep livestock in, well, probably in your house. I mean, you definitely did in Tudor times. People would keep cows in the house. It, yeah. it doubles up as heating. Exactly. No. And I feel like, because I'm also, I've always been very interested in kind of that sensory exploration especially someone who does a lot of work in caves where you're, you're kind of forced to experience what likely people in the past were experiencing because the cave environment doesn't really change after thousands of years. But 
I feel like scents are not as well explored as, say, you know, a lot of the more visual and sound aspects or taste. I mean, I know that there's like experimental archaeology, but come on, let's let's lick some more pottery shards, folks. But I guess it's not as easily quantifiable. In a way similar with sound, I mean, there has been some work in sound and I do think it's fascinating especially sort of in cave or in caves or sort of um, prehistoric megaliths and such to sort of mm-hmm. explore the idea of sound and how sometimes in some places, if you stand in a particular location and you say something, your voice is heard sort of almost distorted on the other side of it. It is fascinating, but I guess somewhat harder to quantify than how much pottery you found. Yeah, but who likes counting in numbers anyway? I do. Well. Except no one ever but me. That's not surprising. Anyway, let's, uh, you know, if we're going to talk about the scents and aromas of of the later prehistoric, you might as well start with the Bronze Age, where, you know, at this point, agriculture pretty established, more or less. So that's probably the most prevalent uh, craft and industry at the time. Yeah. Yeah, because there would have still been some hunting and fishing, but of course, of course. agriculture sort of got the, the pole position. So of course, you know, like. Your hunting and fishing is more, at this point, supplementary. And that's kind of the, the way that shift works. As more people turn to agriculture, you start to see, you know, hunting and fishing tends not to really be your main source of subsistence, depending on where you are, obviously. And, you know, whether or not there's a famine going on, things like that. But broadly speaking, it, it tends to be to to supplement agriculture. Because yeah. agriculture, in the broad sense of the term, gives me what well, and an animal husbandry yeah. gives you pretty much all you need because you know you've got your crop and you've got your livestock which uh, keep you warm. They can give you oil to keep uh, your dwelling lit at night uh it mm-hmm. gives you meat of course and it also does a lot of the work for you yeah with and like, gives you um, a friend and a friend yeah very important <laughs> i don't think our zoo archaeologists think enough about how maybe these people were friends with their cows that's my hot take <laughs> yeah i mean they, they, they might have had indeed like their favorite cow yeah as we it, all do it, it still happens to this day, I mean, like even in present day, while again, agriculture is an industry. So like the uh, livestock will be reared, say for meat. It does happen you know, that a farmer will take liking to one particular animal and they will never uh, see a, an abattoir. Because like, no, they just really like that cow. They're just going to keep it. And when it's too old, they just retire it. <laughs> it, it still happens. Yeah, no, exactly. You know, more things change, more things stay the same, as they say. But as we said, most of these species that are the main focus of these periods, at least zooarchaeologically speaking, are these domesticated species. So as we were just talking about, you have cattle, you have sheep. Cattle rearing was pretty popular, despite the massive deforestation, which was taking place in the Bronze Age could keep cattle actually quite well in woodland, unlike sheep, which were primarily raised for wool. But as Simona was saying, there are many other uses for these animals, meat, manure, milk. It's a, you know, a multi-purpose animal 
that's the thing. And you're not necessarily going to find that in the archaeological record. Because, of course, how do you how do you prove that they were using sheep manure? I mean, you you know they were. Yeah. But how do you prove it? Same with milk and cheese. And, of course, in Turkey, like usually warmer countries where present, well, more than warmer, less damp, drier countries where um, archaeological material does tend to preserve a little bit better, you do tend to find more evidence for dairy. I mean, none that there are none in this country. It's just uh, it seems to be a little bit more difficult for things mm-hmm. to preserve. So, of course, again, like proving that, well, I guess uh, in terms of using more sheep or any animal for milk, really, I guess one way you could ascertain that is, of course, looking at the kill rate. Yeah. So, of course, if you've got an assemblage of sheep bones and you try to establish, especially if you've got well, not so much maybe epiphyseal fusion. Like ideally, you'd want cranial element. You'd want a jaw and maxilla. So, but looking at tooth wear, you yeah. can establish roughly the age of death of the animal. And depending on what, so like if you like gather all this data about all the animals of you know all the particular species that you're looking at, and you put it into a nice little graph, you can uh, you can look roughly what the kill pattern is. To say all the all the sheep on this site tend to be very old, or they are the opposite, so they are, they are quite young. Because if a sheep was slaughtered when it was quite old, it is likely that it was used for milk and wool. Because of course you want to keep them alive as much as possible, so you get as much product out of them as you can. And then when it gets to the stage where the animal, I guess it will still be producing this product, but isn't as productive, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm it doesn't become economical to keep them alive anymore and they get dispatched. I mean, it's not unlike what happened, maybe not in the Bronze Age, but, you know, what definitely happened in history and still happens today, say, with layers, with hens, because they, they will lay for most of their life, but after the first few years, the number of eggs produced considerably decreases. So depending on the type of business they will be cold at that stage because it's not as economical to keep them alive for the lower amount of eggs that they will produce. Yeah. And of course, that would have much been the same in the Bronze Age, maybe not with chickens because uh, probably not a thing yet at that time, but it would have certainly been the case for sheep or for cattle. And uh, yeah, as, as I said, you know, going back to my previous point, if you have your your data set and you see that all the sheep are slaughtered, when quite young, it's likely that they were used for meat instead. Mm-hmm. But then again, you know, in spite of all the graphs you can do, that things are still tricky because a lot of the sheep, a lot of the livestock that were kept back then would have most likely been multi-purpose. Exactly. Like even today, again, on farms, you do get some specific breeds that have been developed, you know, for wool or for meat or milk. But then you also still have dual purpose breeds. Let's mm. say like they, they finish off quite nicely if you're rearing them for meat, but they're also quite productive in terms of milk or wool. Yeah. Not as straightforward. Yeah. Well, and then of course you have the kind of less utilitarian uses. Uh, one of the very odd things about the later prehistoric in general, but also in the Bronze Age is you have a lot of threshold deposits. And one of the things is you can find many juvenile sheep 
within or around the threshold of roundhouses. And these kind of deposits you see a lot, say, in a couple of examples are the Kelsey Kays, of course, which are my sites. And Broxmouth Hill Fort in Scotland as well has several deposits at its entrances of both human and animal remains. So again, you have that kind of trickiness of, you know, not everything is also very utilitarian, at least in the the way we think of using animals. Although, again, it depends because again, because we know next to nothing about their belief system, yeah. even though the <laughs> The deposition is not apparently utilitarian. They may well have thought that it was because, say, like, again, this is not scientific. This is just me making an example out there, just just to prove a point. Say that in the Bronze Age, they would put lambs as threshold deposits because they believed that they would ward off evil spirits. Yeah. I'm just saying completely something wild out there to make a point. While it doesn't seem apparently utilitarian, if you're, according to your belief system, making that action will actually result in uh, whatever sort of leaving you alone, that suddenly becomes very utilitarian for you. Yeah, I mean, I only use the term utilitarian to kind of, it's hard to differentiate, I feel like, through words, because like you say, you know, what seems not quote unquote practical, that's the word I always see a lot, is like practicality. When of course, as you say, if it's in your belief system, then it's 100% practical for you to, say, bury a lamb underneath your your entrance of your roundhouse, you know? But, you're, but it's a good point to also kind of reiterate for others is, you know, you can't really differentiate like that. You, again, yeah, ritual is everything, ultimately. So it, it's hard to be very neat about these categories. Absolutely, because again, we're making inferences about people whose belief system, again, we know next to nothing about. Exactly. Continue that. We we move into the Iron Age, which again, <laughs> still a bit iffy, but I think there's a bit more here, especially when it comes to animals. Yes, a bit more clarity. Again, probably a lot more sites, so like a larger data set to work with. Mind you, like a lot of it, I believe it is transitional with the Roman period. Yeah, for sure. I guess the one thing that strikes me about the Iron Age, of course, the use of iron. <laughs> which <laughs> Striking iron. Is that it does tend to be quite varied in terms of material culture and artifactual evidence across the country. Because like, for instance, you see places like the Southeast which is essentially Romanized in the later Iron Age already, mostly owing to trade networks. Um, so, for example, that you might see Italian ceramic vessels in Iron Age contexts in southern England. Yeah. Because, of course, the trade from the continent coming from Brittany and then later also from Gaul when Caesar had occupied it. Occupied it. Yeah. So we should see the southeastern <laughs> of the country being quite Romanized, but then... There'll be parts, you say, going on the opposite side of it in the southwest and parts like Cornwall, who won't be Romanized for a long time, if at all Romanized, really. Or, you know, parts of well, Scotland. Yeah. Of course, and then like the north. So you, you do see quite a bit of variation, uh, which will extend then later on to the Romano-British period, because, again, some parts of, the, parts of the country will continue living as they always have. OK, so these blokes are in charge now. Grand. I'm still gonna, you know, tend to my livestock and make my bread, and 
yeah, and all that, and they'll go to bed and then it starts again. You yeah. Know. But speaking of the Romans, we do have to give them credit because, as you say, this is a weird transitional period with a bit of an overlap. So you kind of see that with the zoo archaeological record because earliest chicken in Britain, baby, I think, still. Out of the six, I feel like it's always changing. That's the problem. It's the earliest chicken in Britain. Yeah. Well, this is, okay, I, I, let me just put a disclaimer that this is, I think, current because obviously, especially with, you know, the, the chicken project, Naomi Sykes's uh, amazing, gigantic project, we're always finding new information. I feel like this date gets getting pushed back every, every like three years. But as of now, at least from what I understand, the earliest chicken in Britain from White Horse Stone in Aylesford, Kent. So it's very rare to find chicken remains in sites prior to the Roman British period. Only 30% of Iron Age assemblages from South England have domestic fowl. But this is probably the earliest one, but it's still probably also likely a, a Roman British import. <laughs> as, as are most things. I mean, uh, just to touch briefly on the other species that were kept. I mean, it's not that much different as in they would have still kept sheep although they do become a bit less prevalent in the iron age onwards yeah mostly replaced by cattle so you sort of see like people really loving cattle and then cattle sort of dwindles down and sheep become more popular and then sheep sort of get less popular again you see pigs popping up i mean they're not uncommon but they're not common and they do tend to be seen mostly as a high status animal given that because you need a fair amount of land to yeah. raise them. And of course, it is fairly uneconomical to keep keep because while sheep and cattle and that, they will give you other products. Pigs will just eat your food until it's time to finish them. <laughs> of course, that would also explain why mostly, and then again, not just the, in the later prehistoric period, I think it's across the board. A lot of the pigs found in archaeological context, and again, nowadays, tend to be subadults. Yeah. Because even though they still got a little room to grow. The very little they grow will not justify the extra amount of resources you'd have to employ to feed the huge amounts that they eat. Now, in terms of cattle, interestingly, cattle does pop up a fair amount in burial mounds. And uh, it is also frequently found as a motif in uh, both British and European domestic objects. And as we said before, yeah, cattle does tend to be a little bit more prevalent, again, because it can be used. For several purposes, you can use them for meat, milk, cheese, leather, of course, the good old manure. And I guess, well, horses, I mean, I guess not unlike pigs, horses are expensive to keep. So they'll be used in warfare and hunting and generally seen as high status because, again, they're quite expensive to keep. And in terms of sort of mortality rate, you do tend to see that the horses tend to be on the older side of things because horses, again, horses are expensive. That should go in the bingo. So if you acquire enough resources to have one, you will keep it alive for as long as you can. Yep. And I think we will stop for now and kind of continue on and then get into our case studies in the next segment. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we are back with Archaeo Animals. And we are talking about the zooarchaeology of later prehistoric as part of our Time Warped mini-series. And before we get into our case notes, just a little... We kind of end our conversation from the last segment because I realized we didn't actually talk about any wild species, <laughs> which, to be fair, there's a lot to talk about with the domesticated animals. So I feel like we get a pass on that. Yeah, no, I think I did go off on one on sort of mortality rates and sort of kill ratios. We, we lo- but we love that. That's what we love about you, Simona. I was just shocked that it wasn't really about romance. Uh, <laughs> but no, it's just like for a change, I'm going into details about when animals get dispatched. Listen, variety is the spice of life. But, oh, hi, Bastet. <laughs> yeah, so ironically, though, even though we, we need to touch upon wild species in the Iron Age, there actually isn't that much to really talk about because they weren't as prevalent in the zooarchaeological record and neither are fish remains which is actually a huge debate, still kind of ongoing among Iron Age zooarchaeologists. Because obviously, you know, ab- absence of, what's the, what's the phrase? Absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. There you go. Just because we have an absence of fish remains doesn't mean that everyone was, you know, not eating fish. And fish are also very tricky because obviously they're very often small bones, often very fragile bones. So you already kind of have this lack of fish remains in your average site. But there is this kind of idea that maybe there could have been a taboo on eating fish, as there is a very distinct lack of fish remains across many Iron Age sites. But it's also not clearly not a blanket cultural characteristic which obviously we could say about a lot of these things. But we do find significant fishing remains at a lot of other Iron Age sites, particularly in the Northern Isles, like the Orkney Islands and Shetland, and places that are mainland in Scotland, like Broxmouth Hill Fort. So just want to touch upon that, mostly because that was basically what my master's thesis was about, and I would feel bad if we didn't talk about it. <laughs> Anyway. I guess now moving on onto the segment that we've decided it's everyone's favorite. We just like no make one's the decision ever. for everyone. Yeah, no one's ever ever said that this is their favorite segment, but I don't care. It is your favorite segment now. Well, it's Bastet's favorite segment. Oh, wow. But yeah, so we'll be talking about um, case studies. 
Now, the first one is one that you would have probably heard before, but it's cool. So we're going to do it again. <laughs> and that is um, Must Farm and Flagfen. Yes. Because Must Farm being more like, the, I guess, the name of the project and uh, Flagfen being the site. Yeah. It's a late Bronze Age settlement that is, uh, it's in the name, it's at the edge of the Fens, so in the east of England. And it's along the river Nen or Nien, if you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> and um, it is presumed that the settlement has burned down within six months of its construction, which is real unlucky for them, but real lucky for us, because the site was, of course, abandoned as was, thus giving us a very exciting glimpse into everyday late Bronze Age life. Part of the reason why, like, in case you're wondering like why it's been argued that the settlement was so short-lived, is the absence of synanthropic insect species. So these are insect species which pretty much rely on human occupation to survive or thrive. We've mentioned them before. I'm not sure if any of you remember uh, a good old friend, the, the, the general, Sitophilus granarius, a, a humble friend, a grain weevil. He is one of the synanthropic species because um, without humans, it's pretty much stuffed. And I, I think he's also our podcast mascot. It definitely is now. <laughs> did we get some fan art? We do. I believe we, we have some we fan did. art. Yeah. You're on Instagram. If you go on my Instagram profile at Archaeology Fits. Don't really follow me because I'm not very exciting. But we do. I do have a kind of highlight saved of fan art uh, that people have made for the show, which is still so wild. wild. And we are so thankful that people have listened longer than two minutes of this podcast. Yeah, we're, we're so thankful and, and undeserving of your time. Exactly. <laughs> that said, if you have some fan art for some reason, again, we are so thankful. But also send it to me on Instagram. I'd be happy to highlight it. It's it's absolutely. It's just great. It makes me feel warm inside, which is hard because I'm a very cold-hearted person. Anyway. I mean, not right now. It is pretty hot. Um, it is. No, I'm boiling. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, but that brings us back, in a way, to the point that you made about sort of the absence of something from the archaeological record. I mean, uh, the absence of the synanthropic species uh, from Flag Fen is also an interesting reminder how the absence of a certain species can be just as significantly important as their presence. Yes. Because, of course, due to the lack of sort of these particular species, they could ascertain that the site had not been settled for long enough for these species to sort of let themselves in, because they definitely were not invited in. They let themselves <laughs> in. Just rude. But yeah, it's a, it's a major site that's super interesting because of the stunning preservation of the organic material because again because of its particular location at the edge of the fence there is some water logging going on as you'd expect combined with of course the charring of the remains um due to it you know burning down and going back to fish once more you know like um there is a for it being you know other indicators about the presence of a certain species other than the bones themselves, when it comes to fish on Flag Fen, we didn't really, there wasn't really any fish remains recovered from site. Mm -hmm. But we do know they did fish because during the excavations, they have discovered fishwares and eel traps made out of wicker. 
So while no actual fish were found, <laughs> we, we, we know they were being fished and, well, eaten, probably. So, you know, again, like, not only the absence of a, a particular species is important, but also sometimes other artifactual evidence other than the bones themselves can tell you that some species were indeed present on the settlement. And again, the presence of sheep and dogs, I mean, remains were found, but their presence was also implied by, uh, implied by preserved coprolites. Ooh, I, was, I was just thinking, like, I don't think we've really talked a lot about coprolites on this show. Because again, it's just something so rare to come yeah, across. Because uh, it needs to be in a pretty sort of anaerobic conditions yeah. for that to preserve, unless you go way, way, way back before the time of archaeology, where it's completely fossilized and it's stone. But when it's still a bit gooey, then <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of needs a fair few factors for it to preserve across millennia. Yeah. And uh, once again, some of the evidence recovered from this site, or I guess the, the various phases of this sort of huge site, brings us back to one of the points that we mentioned about the later Bronze Age and deposits at thresholds of dwellings, because we do find both lambs and calves within the thresholds of roundhouses. Yeah. Uh, but there seems to be an interesting distinction between sort of um, domesticates and wild species, because you do yeah. seem to find yeah, the domesticates sort of more in the domestic sphere, mm. yeah, uh, sort of in these uh, threshold deposits, while like wild animals, chiefly wild boar and deer, will be found outside the dwellings. Yeah, that is really interesting. <laughs> And what's also quite interesting about this uh, remains of wild species is that it, they're in proportionally higher quantities than what you'd expect from a contemporary site. Oh. I mean, like several theories have been been thrown around uh, as to well, thrown around. They've, they've been developed through research, not just <laughs> as to why that could have been the case. One of the reasons that was suggested is because, uh, of course, the fens are pretty much a wetland environment. Yeah. It's uh, perhaps not as well suited to rearing domesticates. So like sheep, for example, you know, they would struggle quite a bit given the conditions and would probably develop diseases such as foot rot. Yum. <laughs> yeah. No, not for them it was. And thus, in a way, like making hunting more prevalent yeah i guess and again a lot of fishing uh, taking place clearly although i was mistaken fish was recovered from site but in very very small quantities and uh, like the occasional pike mm -hmm. but again we know they were fishing yeah i mean that's kind of the case for a lot of sites that i've worked on that have been kind of roped into this conversation over whether or not there was a fish taboo in places in the Iron Age where you do get some fish remains and then you have that kind of conversation of like, oh, was that, is this proof of, again, like a famine or something, some kind of issue where they were forced to kind of, you know, add, supplement their subsistence strategies with fishing. And I mean, again, it's, it is all theories ultimately, but the kind of, artifactual record kind of suggests that no they were probably fishing it's just fish bones are the worst and we all hate them 
Yeah, and of course, in more inland settlements, maybe at certain points in time, it wouldn't have been as economical to import fish. In. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it, it again, it varies. And there's a lot of contextual aspects to kind of consider. But so again, like a lot of the sites where you seem to be finding fish, even in the Iron Age, I mean, most of the ones that you've mentioned are sort of coastal sites. And even like places by like, like Flak Fen, it's not that far from the Nen. Yeah. So again, like while, I mean, it's not unduly far from the sea, but of course you've got the river that's fairly close by, there will be some fishing. Yeah, I guess it just, it really just depends. It is hard. I, I, I find that I struggle with this sometimes as well, especially when, you know, when you're looking at the zoo archaeological record and you're trying to figure out, in particular, like kind of weird sites where you're like, oh, some of this might be more natural deposits rather than human induced deposits trying to figure out like oh would they go through the trouble of going that far to fish or whatever but yeah it it is interesting to consider and i just realized that actually our second site for the case studies kind of makes like a really interesting parallel not parallel but like a comparison to uh must farm and everything because it has way worse (laughs) preservation but a similar kind of story in terms of you know that absence of material and i'm gonna apologize now because i'm going to pronounce everything wrong unless you you know do you know how all these pronunciations go carnuni is it carnuni that's what i thought it was but yeah, Carnuni is a Iron Age village in the southwest of England. As we said, lots, of, lots and lots of Iron Age stuff in, in the southeast and southwest of England. And it was occupied until the Roman occupation of Britain. It was a very domestic site, uh, which you'll see in the mammal representation. And it's mostly known for its fogu. Fogu. Fugu. Oh, it's. I think it's a very because uh, Carnuni is in um, in Cornwall. Yeah, and isn't I think fugus are a very Cornish thing that I think still puzzles archaeologists to these day as to why. I mean, it's, it's cool, but yeah, why? it's cool. It's also the first time I've ever actually heard of it, which I guess makes sense. There's only apparently 15 surviving ones in Britain. At least 15 like confirmed surviving ones. Obviously, there's loads that haven't been really confirmed yet uh, because a fogu is a underground passage with side chambers. So a little bit of criteria there for archaeologists to kind of base their interpretations on. And they're mostly seen in the Iron Age and the Roman period. I think there's very rarely any fogu that have been first constructed in the late Iron Age. So something like that. And then the houses in this Iron Age village are referred to as courtyard houses, which is another thing I actually never heard of as someone who mostly works in Scotland, where it's just hill forts and roundhouses, baby. Um, So courtyard houses are basically, there's a wall surrounding an open courtyard, and then you have like a roundhouse built in. I'm also very bad at architecture and archaeology, so maybe that's why I'm I don't know. <laughs> I had heard of this. I mean, uh, aside from the roundhouse built in it, it, it sounds very Roman. Yeah. To have like a dwelling Which in I the guess, central urban courtyard. I guess that kind of fits into that like 
weird transitional period that it took place. In. Yeah, but again, like um, Carnuni was settled yeah, during sort of the early Roman period as well. So you just you probably have some overlap and uh of course we'll get to that in a minute because there isn't a lot of material available <laughs> on this um on this site. I mean it's like there would have been multiple phases yeah. in the settlement. Yeah, it, this was uh, my idea to cover this because while yeah, the podcast in general is very Britain centric, I do find it that it's uh, specifically England centric <laughs> most of the time. So it's good to like integrate sort of uh, studies and sites from sort of other parts of the country, such as Cornwall, which are so distinct from everywhere else. So. There you go. Blame me. Yeah. Uh, just full disclosure, while we were working on this episode, I got a text from Simona that was just like, uh, is there any ar- zoo archaeology there? <laughs> Basically. Uh, and do you know what? It was a fair question because there's not really that much going on about the zoo archaeology. The only paper I could find that was published and available online about Carnuni, uh, the bone report is half a page in the appendices. Apparently, there is a PhD thesis on the animal bones from this site, made uh, written by someone named R.T. Jones at the University of York in 1977, but I cannot find it online. So if you're out there, please send it to me. I'm very interested now. But m- the main reason why there's such a, a lack of this material is because of the soil. It's, uh, it's because Cornwall. Yeah, because of Cornwall, but in the, it's such an opposite from our first case study in that, you know, the area is very acidic. Uh, so you have a, a very significant lack of organic materials overall. But I think there's still a lot to discuss and speculate. Uh, you kind of actually started talking about it in terms of, you know, what do we do when we have this lack in the zoological record? And so you kind of have to infer from other aspects of the site. So again, we know that this is more or less a domestic site. So what are the kind of animals we will be find here? And, you know, you're, you're probably looking at your sheep, your goat, your cattle, for sure. And then potentially pigs, horses, dogs. So there's a lot of tin nearby, from what I understand. So people at the Sublime were likely tin traders. Uh, they were like the tin traders and they're one of the interpretations kind of going out there is, you know, maybe they traded if they were tin traders, maybe they also traded for resources as well. Yeah. Cause I mean, one thing about Cornwall is I think Cornwall has been was already renowned at the time for the tin. Yeah. I think it was like one of the sort of oh, peninsula almost. Yeah. It's effectively a peninsula. One of the sort of biggest exports would have been their tin. Yeah. So, you know, kind of considering um, a trading element with regards to animals. And then the other thing is the fogu itself is very hotly debated in terms of what it was actually used for. So one of the the more zooarchaeologically related theories I found is it might have been used as cold storage or at least kind of general food storage. Although other people say that (laughs) the fogu is too large to just be used for storage. Which, in, in my response to that, is it, you never have a fridge too large for food. Another interpretation was that it was a cow shed. But again, why would you be putting your cows underground? My personal belief is that it's probably ritual. I mean, yes to all of those things, probably. And I think that's a, that's a good place to end this episode, is to 
Yeah. Although, well, one fun fact about corn, because we you know we did mention that the preservation is quite poor, because uh, unfortunately, like um, the soils in Cornwall do tend to be very, on the very acidic side. Yeah. Which of course doesn't lead doesn't tend to good preservation. But uh, one way that you can tell that the soil is very acidic, so one thing that I've um, noticed is that uh, uh, there seems to be a lot of hydrangeas huh. everywhere. Okay. You find them in, in private gardens, roundabouts, very popular. Also because hydrangeas, much like um, azaleas and I believe camellias, camellia, if that's how you pronounce it, they all love acidic soils. Huh. So in Cornwall, these plants thrive. I mean, I've got hydrangeas in my garden. They, they look, it's it's fairly acidic. It's clay site where I'm on. But just in Cornwall, they're just so huge and magnificent. The heights they reach is, is fabulous. I mean, like the whole of Cornwall is fabulous. So it's just, yeah, it just adds to the fabulousness. And so we'll end our episode with a, a paid advertisement from Cornwall. Uh, I'm so glad we've gotten this kind of sponsorship on this podcast. But yeah, if you do, if you don't want to sponsor the episode, but still want to support us, you can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. You can find us on Facebook, again, at Archeo Animals. Uh, like and subscribe to our podcast. Put, leave a review, a nice review, please. I am very fragile. And um, I think that's it. We'll see you next episode where we'll be, uh, Simona will be by herself talking about the Romans as part of our mini series. Sure, why not? Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.